From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As we move toward the end of January, more and more eyes are focusing on hoops. And the Gators are in the midst of a run of high-profile matchups that might trick you into thinking it's March. On today's show, we welcome in FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss the noteworthy battles against multiple Tigers. A chance to take out number one this weekend, Tony's return for one last ride, Felipe Frank's departure to Arkansas, preseason hype for baseball, and Hall of Fame controversy in the PAT. Then, McDonald's All-American and all-around Renaissance man Scotty Lewis dishes on his elite dunking skills, his unique hobbies, and his growth halfway through his freshman year. But first, basketball had the bright lights on in back-to-back games this past week, first at home in a signature blowout against a top-five Auburn squad, and then on the road in a controversial finish against LSU. As they prepare to host an unexpected number one team in Baylor, we opened our roundtable with Chris and Scott by discussing Tuesday's heartbreak at the Horn. Both the Mike White and players referenced that it had a little bit of that Alabama feel to it. I, I, I didn't necessarily think that because I, the Alabama game seemed so out of reach for so long, um, the, the season opening game where they came back from 21 points down to win in double overtime. This one... This one was close, uh, mostly throughout. Then LSU seemed to ha- have it all uh, in hand. I mean, you're talking about an 11-point lead with three minutes to go, a 10-point lead, I want to say at 120, and then inside a minute even. Um, all of a sudden, you know, Florida just started raining in shots. I mean, they made eight of the last 10 shots over the last three minutes and 13 seconds. Uh, Noah Locke made two three-pointers. Keontae Johnson made two three-pointers. Andrew Nemar made three shots in that time, and Kerry Blackshear made a, made a, a tip-in with 1.4 seconds left to set up that crazy ending. Um, but what happened was, I mean, Florida kind of unfolded, uh, uh, you know, full court pressure the way LSU did mid game and LSU did not react to it for some reason. Plus missed some free throws, which they hadn't done uh, earlier in the game. Uh, Florida kind of lost control of the game or LSU kind of gained control of the game. Excuse me. You know, during that first half when, you know, Andrew Nemhar can't play 40 minutes. They got to get some uh, better minutes out of some of the backups. And, you know, that falls on Quez Glover. And you can't get in there in seven minutes, turn the ball over three times, uh, especially those kind of live ball turnovers that turn into transition opportunities and on the road and get the home uh, crowd uh, really into it. And that's what happened at, at Maravich on Tuesday night, how LSU got control of the game. But my goodness, the way Florida shot the ball down the stretch, the way they didn't lie down and stayed in the fight, as Mike White talked about afterwards, you know, he he wasn't claiming any kind of moral victory. But at the same time, there's no doubt this is a better team than it was a month ago. You look at the last three games, I can take you back to the Auburn game before that, the Ole Miss game before that. The team shot over 50% three straight games in the SEC. Uh, the A lot of fingers were pointing at how disjointed and – out of sync this offense was early in the season they've straightened some things out they've uh fixed some some of the stuff they're running players are getting more confident they're more in tune with each other uh more connected as billy diamond used to say 
And the results are, I mean, they're, they're, I think they're scoring 81 points a game in SEC play. 12 and 6, no one's happy about 12 and 6. 4 and 2 in the SEC, you're two games out of first at LSU. You're going to get LSU again. You're going to get Kentucky twice. There's some good teams still left on the schedule. Florida is going to be playing its best basketball heading into February, but obviously there's a uh, there's a significant roadblock they can knock down this weekend, which I'm sure you're about to ask me about. Yeah, and I want to talk about that Baylor game. Certainly number one coming to town is always a big deal. But going back to the Auburn game that you referenced, I know a week ago we talked about that being really a signature-type victory for Florida if they could get it. Now, certainly there was some of the luster lost on it when Auburn got dominated earlier in the week by Alabama. That was after our conversation. Uh, But as far as, again, showing what they're capable of, This is a couple games in a row now where really, really high-level teams Florida's either beaten or been on the verge of beating. So as you noted, there's certainly been a lot of progress in that sense. What did you see specifically that led to that against Auburn? Well, against Auburn, it was uh, being able to make shots, and and it helps when you got a guy who goes nine for nine from the floor. And obviously, I'm talking about freshman uh, forward Omar Payne, who's really playing the center position right now in, in what the Gators have kind of decided is their better lineup to roll out at the start of the game and that's Omar at the five Kerry Blackshaw moving over to the uh the four the power forward position and Keontae Johnson who is now approaching 40 percent as a three-point shooter moving to a six a six five small forward position which maybe he's probably more suited for but as a guy who wasn't a great last year he was a stretch four player so now he's on the wing where he can get the ball, face the basket, and drive and get downhill and finish. Um, that's his strength. At LSU, Kerry Blackshear uh, hit his first two threes to, and finished two for two from the three-point line. People were saying, well, he's taking too many threes. Well, he's not because when he's standing out there, he changes the defense. And now you got Omar Payne who's figuring some stuff out down on the block. If Kerry Blackshear is out on the perimeter or and Keontae Johnson out on the perimeter, Omar Payne is down there cleaning up. I mean, against Auburn, he had seven offensive rebounds. They all turned into putbacks. Uh, he had a couple more um, at LSU. Uh, he made his first three shots there. At one point, he'd made 16 straight shots over three games, which uh, uh, is the most at Florida in a long time. Our, uh, our research people are checking when the last time that happened. But uh, that was a come-into-your-own game a little bit for Omar Payne. But uh, he took a step backward at LSU, not with the fact that he only had seven points, I believe four rebounds or five rebounds, however many he had. And he had a technical foul at a really bad time. Florida, I think, was winning the game. He had a little confrontation with a player, gets a call for a technical foul, a flagrant. LSU makes a two free throw, scores, and things kind of uh, went their favor after that. So... That'll be something that will be discussed, but it's also a, a growing pain moment, a teachable moment for the coaches. And my guess is something like that's not going to happen to Omar Payne again because uh, that was a little out of, out of character for him. So with Baylor coming in, it's another chance to to really impress a lot of people. It's got a national audience. And then, of course, anytime you have a chance to beat number one, that's a big deal. So, Chris, can you talk about just what it would mean for Florida to beat a number one team coming off of their first top five win in over a decade and also what that challenge looks like specifically against this Baylor team. Well, Florida's only beaten uh, a number one team twice in 18 cracks in program history. So it'd be huge. The last one being uh, when the Gators defeated Ohio state in the national championship game, those two teams that people remember played early in the year in Gainesville. And it was number three versus uh, number four, I believe. And Florida won that game by 26 points at the Odom. I think it was two nights before Christmas. Um, the only other number one victory came in the Sweet 16 against Duke in the uh, 2000. 
NCAA tournament. So it's two and 16 in those games. This one kind of fell out of the sky, if you ask me. I mean, circumstances happen, and now Baylor's the seventh number one, uh, seventh team to occupy that number one spot. And they certainly earned it. They lost their second game of the year. It was a neutral site game against Washington, which was played in Alaska. But along the way, they've beaten Villanova. They've beaten Arizona. They've beaten Butler. I think they handed Butler their first loss of the season. It was a one-point game, I think. They've beaten Texas Tech. They've beaten Kansas uh, they held off Oklahoma. Oklahoma actually had a really good three-point look down two, and with, I want to say, six seconds left in the game Monday night, uh, they had a chance to pull that out. But they're 16-1. and one. They're coming here. Uh, the game sold out. It was just, again, a week ago where Auburn represented uh, that gold star resume builder for the uh, postseason. I mean, if Florida, can, and if Florida held its own, obviously, against LSU, that was a close one. Um, if they can somehow beat Baylor at home, that's going to get some people's attention and that's going to give them some momentum. And again, I can't emphasize they're, they're playing so much better now, but obviously the Baylor bears are going to be a tough out. They're a, they're a, a unique team. They play four guards. They have one senior forward who may be the most improved player in the country in Freddie Gillespie. They're a really, really interesting team. They play, they don't play fast. They're the number four defensive efficiency team in the country. They just kind of wear you down and guys on the perimeter that are really, really athletic and really, really efficient, um, even though they are methodical in what they do. So a huge opportunity. There's no question about that. And all eyes will be on Gainesville this weekend. Uh, it's actually, it's part of a big weekend. Gymnastics also has a huge meet as well. Um, but I, I want to talk about what's going on with football. A few, a uh, few bits of news this week. Let's talk first about a guy who is returning to school, Scott, and that is Kadarius Tony. And, you know, it seems like now there's almost this assumption that, that every junior has to publicly announce they're coming back to school as opposed to as if it's, it's assumed they're not until they say they are. Uh, but Tony you know, struggled with injuries this past year, but when he was healthy, he showed some flashes of, of brilliance that, you know, Florida's hoping to get more of next year when he's healthy for an entire season. Yeah. Kadarius Tony's always been intriguing talent since he stepped on campus. Uh, you know, he's the one guy on this team on this roster, uh, you could go back and look, probably no one mentions him, you know, during the course of a game, oftentimes, you know, fans ask more about him than any other player. It happened in the Orange Bowl. Michael P. Ryan's having one of his better games ever. And people are like, oh, why, don't, why are they getting Tony the ball more? <laughs> um, I mean, that's just the, the, the intrigue with him. He's such a dynamic player with the ball in his hands. Has had a lot of injury problems, which we saw last year with the shoulder injury. Uh, missed half the season. And, uh, you know, he announced he's coming back. Not a big surprise there. I think a very wise decision on his part. Uh, but if he can ever stay healthy and is able to take on more of a workload in the offense, there's no doubt that he's Florida's most electrifying player on offense. And uh, getting him back was a, a, a big win in the offseason for the Gators. Uh you know, with him and Trayvon Grimes and Jacob Copeland, Kyle Pitts coming back uh, in the receiver spots, you know, they're losing a lot of talent there. But uh, obviously they have a lot returning uh, with those four names I just mentioned and some younger players who they're looking to to get more out of in 2020. Uh, but Kadarius Toney, uh, just a, a player that, you know, Gator fans want to see more of. I think Dan Mullen would like to be able to find ways to get him the ball more. But again, it really starts with, can he stay healthy? Can he, can he make it through a full season uh, without getting banged up and missing a game or two? And the, if he can do that, that's going to be good for Florida's offense in 2020. 
And it is circumstantial to a large degree, just based on the crop of talent you have and, and what year they happen to be. But as you noted, I think we talked a few weeks ago, I think you wrote about this as well, Scott. Florida's done pretty well in terms of attrition. I mean, only one guy, CJ Henderson, leaving early, not a lot of impact players going into the transfer portal. So given how much movement we tend to see after bowl season in college football, Florida is, is pretty much intact. Funny how that works, Adam. Uh, you start winning some games and start finishing in the top 10 and uh, uh, your team um, solidifies some. And I, I think that's what you're seeing with Florida. You know, I think all the guys you know who announced publicly they're coming back. And I, I'm like you, it used to only be a news story or uh, something that fans would be interested in when players leave. But we live in a different time where you know, players communicate a lot more directly to their fans now through social media. So you had, a, you know, Trevon Grimes was first, and you had Marco Wilson, then Sean Davis, and finally Kadarius Toney. And I think when you look all four of those players uh, coming back next season, I think they all made uh, good decisions. C.J. Henderson leaving was not a surprise. He announced that before the Orange Bowl and obviously did not play uh, in the Orange Bowl. He was uh, Florida's highest-rated NFL prospect before the season, and I don't know if he had as good of a season as he hoped. He battled some injuries, but again, he has all those physical tools that NFL scouts love in a cover corner. And I think the Gators, they're entering with a lot of momentum, uh, getting players like we talked about last week with Lingard, the running back from Miami, uh, doing pretty well on the recruiting trail having the guys return that we just talked about, that's that's a lot of momentum. That's what programs on the rise have going. I think there's a great window of opportunity right now for the Gators in 2020 to take that next step that Dan Mullins talked about. Uh, if that happens, we're going to have, uh, you know, these guys that we're talking about are going to have to come through. And some guys that we're not talking about, some young guys that maybe we, uh, we haven't seen too much are going to have to uh, surprise. But, uh, I think Dan Mullen really likes where the program is right now. In terms of our, our first opportunity to see those early enrollees and, of course, the returners as well, uh, the Orange and Blue game officially announced, Scott. When is that going to be, and, and when should fans expect to hear more? Yeah, save the date, April 18th. Uh, that's the day of the spring game. Uh, the Orange and Blue game at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium still are waiting on a kickoff time. That's going to be probably determined by a TV, obviously. But April 18th is the date. So, uh, and I'm sure, as always, there'll be some other events going on on campus uh, that coincides with the spring game. As far as the guy who will not be in spring ball, uh, Felipe Franks, we've known for a while he was going to be leaving, didn't know where that was going to be, but found out this week that it is, uh, it's Arkansas is the next destination for him, which somewhat surprising given the turnover they just had in their coaching staff, a lot of unknowns about what that program is going to be looking to do here in, in 2020. But uh, as far as Franks, I guess, Scott, just talk about the fit, talk about what this means for him. And also, I know you wrote a story reflecting on his time in Gainesville, which if nothing else, was very eventful over the course of the last four years. He was. You know, he came in uh, four years ago in the spring of 2016, and now he's finally, you know, departed and landed in Arkansas. And, you know, when he announced on December 1st that he was exploring his options, that wasn't a surprise considering the way the season turned out for the Gators and, and obviously Kyle Trask, uh, the, just the depth at the quarterback. I mean, there was no guarantee that Felipe could get healthy and come back and win that job again. Uh, so he looked elsewhere, landed Arkansas, where they recently hired first-year coach in Sam Pittman, 
the former offensive line coach at Georgia. He uh, he got Kendall Browse as his offensive coordinator, who was at Florida State last year. Uh, so for Felipe, it's just a fresh start. Uh, it's an opportunity to prove to NFL scouts that he's healthy. First of all, anytime you're you're coming off a serious season-ending injury like he is, uh, that's going to be uh, focus number one. Is he healthy? Uh, we all know about his physical s- skills, his big arm, athleticism. Uh, I think it just getting to play in a different offense and going in there. I mean, it's a program that they were horrible last year. It's about the only way you can put it. And for them, it gives them a kind of a, a big name quarterback uh, to come in. People are going to be familiar with Felipe Franks. Uh, it gives him a chance to, like I said, reestablish himself. And it'll be interesting to watch because it, he's pr- they're probably going to take some lumps. But if, if he does show the improvement that he did at Florida in 2018 under Dan Mullen, it continues to evolve in his game. And maybe I think the offense, that from what I understand, that he's going to be playing in, he's going to be throwing the ball around quite a bit. Uh, so it will it will be interesting to see how that unfolds for him. But uh, Felipe, you know, what I basically try to get across and what I wrote about him is hey, there's been very few players, certainly not in the last decade, as polarizing as he has been. Uh, he'll go down as one of those guys that, you know, whatever you think of Felipe Franks, not many Gator fans are going to forget him. And I just thought it was a, a great example in a day and age that we live. He's a guy that came in from a small town and had never really faced any criticism. He, he boy, he got exposed to it fast here. And we saw him kind of grow up in front of our eyes. And, you know, he certainly uh, stubbed his toes some along the way. But I, I think the, the number one thing that I'll take away is, you know, and that's just from the the mood inside the locker room with the coaches. I mean, Felipe is really well regarded by his teammates, his coaches, and uh, he, he made a lot of things uh, happen for the better for to play an important role in that turnaround season. So we wish him the best at Arkansas. And for those wondering, Florida does not play Arkansas next year unless they were to make the SEC championship game, which seems highly unlikely, but hey, you never know. Uh, so it should not have to see Felipe Franks go up against the Gators uh, for the remainder of his college career. A quick note here on on baseball, Scott. I know we're still a few weeks away from the start of the season, but now is when the polls all start to come out. And uh, no surprise, uh, very high expectations for Kevin O'Sullivan's team as always. Yeah, you know, they didn't necessarily have these kind of high expectations last year, but after the season they had with the young players, and they're going to be ranked in the top four of uh, each of your major polls. Baseball America has them fourth. B1 Baseball has them fourth. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of uh, expectations for this program as it plays its final season in the Keithan Stadium. And, you know, the names that people are familiar with, Austin Laneworthy is back, uh, Judd Fabian in center field, Jack Leftwich, Tommy Mason starting rotation. But really what puts them over the top, I think, into the top ten are the new players and none other than the left-handed starting pitcher, Hunter Barco out of Tampa. He is the highest rated freshman in the country he's the the best prospect uh, in major league baseball who did not sign coming out of high school last year and he's a left-handed power thrower just another of those uh, great arms that we've seen kevin o'sullivan uh, add to the program the last uh, decade and uh, if he lives up to uh, the hype uh Fortis, they're going to be knocking at the door you know for a potential uh, you know sec championship and return trip to the College World Series if uh, if this team plays up to expectations. And we'll talk more about that when uh, baseball season 
gets here in a couple weeks. But right now, I do want to turn our attention to the PAT. This week, the Baseball Hall of Fame announced its latest inductees. No surprise, Derek Jeter. Nearly unanimous. I think the number I saw was 396 out of 397 possible votes, which is just astonishing to me that someone was that petty. They didn't want him to be unanimous. Uh, And then Larry Walker got in in his final year of eligibility. But the people that get talked about most are those big, bold-faced names that continue to knock at the door and be turned away. Guys like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, uh, who would have been first ballot Hall of Famers had they not been tainted by alleged steroid issues. Um, The thing I want to know from you guys We talked about this last week a little bit in terms of the Astros situation and what is appropriate in terms of bans and who should be allowed in the club, not in the club. Do you guys think that there's ever going to be a time that the steroid tainted players should get in based on the fact that so many others in that era were doing it, but maybe weren't publicly linked to it or caught? Or should that door always be closed? End of story. Oh, boy. I guess hasn't there been discussion and Scott's the baseball guy about steroid era designation versus versus the rest is that is that a thing there has been discussion uh, about that as one way to uh, kind of classify those guys who were implicated in the steroid scandal and maybe have a a place for them I, i i don't know if it's really close to being reality but i guess that's one way you could go for me all i know is i was riveted like most people to the home run chase of the 98 uh, with McGuire and Sosa, certainly the, the the respect that they had for each other when they're, especially when they were playing against each other and all that stuff. And I, I like everyone else, you were, you just glued your TV every time those guys came to bat. And then to have it all like shatter with corks exploding out of bats and uh, stories about Diana Ball or whatever the hell it was and lockers and stuff. It's just it, baseball needed one big hot shower to clean it all. I just, it just, it just seems to me that we need to quit talking about it. And somebody needs to make a, a grown up decision and say, either these guys that were found guilty in this whole Balco thing or whatever umbrella they put them under either go on the ballot or not. Why should it be left up to these writers to it's, it's up to their conscience, whether or not that they think these guys belong. Um, someone in baseball needs to decide, I think whether these guys are eligible and I guess then the writers determine what the moral compass for everybody is after that. So it just it just seems like a bizarre way to to go about this thing. I think someone needs to make a blanketed decision that these guys can either be on the ballot or not instead of baseball writers be the conscience of everybody. Yeah, it's kind of getting to be a an old tired angel, I guess, argument. I mean, every year you see it and you see, you know, I follow a lot of baseball writers or your friends on Facebook from my time covering the game. And so many of them, you know, post their actual Hall of Fame ballots online and then open it up for discussion with anyone who wants to talk. And I've often thought, like, okay, if I had a Hall of Fame vote right now, what would I do? And I think at first I was probably, I was totally against these guys being in ever. Um, but then, you you know, you factor in, like, like we've talked about, Roger Clemens, uh, Barry Bonds, there's a there's a handful of those guys who were great before they really started using steroids, and now they scarred the record book forever. I still think there's a place for those guys in the Hall of Fame, uh, in my personal opinion. I would be okay at this point. I certainly would want some kind of designation to let make sure future generations know, hey, 
these guys were great players, but the reason they own a lot of these records uh, that they set in their latter stages of their career because <laughs> they broke the rules. And, you know, it's an argument that's been renewed now with the, the scandal with the Astros and the Red Sox and sign stealing. And I've read a couple of opinions that I kind of agree with. You know, as bad as steroids were, I, I think the sign stealing is even worse because, you know, a guy up at the plate who is on steroids you know, he still guessed and he still got to hit that ball out of the park. And But, you know, do you remember Martin McGuire may have had 120 home runs if he was also stealing signs. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's really uh, shameful that the game ha- is at this point because uh, it's a great game. It's always had scandals. It's always survived scandals. But I'm like, Chris, it's like we're at a point. Okay, how, how long are we going to do this every year? And one thing I know about the Baseball Writers Association of America, a lot of those members have been members for two, three, four, some even five decades now. They're probably not going to change their opinion. So either you have to say, okay, these guys are we're taking them off the ballot. They're never going to be inducted. Or if we're going to vote them in, let's, let's have this uh, – designation that explains it to everybody uh so uh, that's just my opinion uh he makes a great point let's say let's say you cut the last six years off of of he, he said bonds and clements the last six years of their of their careers and i don't have the numbers in front of me but i imagine those were their greatly uh, uh enhanced uh, uh steroid years those guys are probably in the hall of fame right 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 yeah. and so there's there's some rationale to that but uh i understand his point but i mean you're gonna go to cooperstown and build a build a whole wing that maybe is maybe it's bulkier than the other wing. <laughs> that, that, can, that can be the one where all the where all the juiced up guys go in they, yeah they can serve tropicana in the back or something like that. <laughs> no those are those are good points in any case always good to get you guys with your experience and your wisdom to share with us uh, your thoughts but i know this week you're gonna be channeling all of that into a huge weekend on campus Number one Baylor comes town for basketball, big meet for gymnastics, a lot of excitement and energy on campus. They'll be writing about it, floridagators.com. You can follow them on Twitter, at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. If constant NBA chatter and McDonald's All-American status seem like a lot for an 18-year-old to handle, few appear more prepared for the role than Scotty Lewis. Even more so than athleticism and potential, the word maturity is the one you'll likely most associate with Lewis after listening to our conversation with him, which began by taking a trip back to where it all got underway for the budding star. Mainly, I grew up in Bronx, New York. Um, I kind of moved around a lot when I was younger. Um, I started playing basketball when I moved with my father when I was about 12 or 13 um my dad played college basketball he played overseas um super athlete kind of similar to myself I'm a little bit bigger a little bit more athletic than he was but um uh he was playing in a men's league and I wasn't playing basketball at the time so watching him and my older brother always play they always tried to get me into it because I was just tall lanky and I used to do so many other things that didn't involve sports so when I moved with my dad it was such a big part of his life and my brother's life I was like um I might as well try this out so uh, I ended up playing and wasn't very good at first in sixth grade then I gradually just got better because I wanted to take it more seriously. You know, my dad asked me, like, do you want to take this seriously? And, um, you know, luckily my answer was yes. And now I'm here. You mentioned your older brother. I know that you also have five total brothers and seven sisters. 
what is it like growing up with that many siblings? Or were they all in one place? Were they in different places? What was that dynamic like? Uh, so I grew up with four of my brothers, two older brothers, two younger brothers. Uh, my other brother, Elijah, uh, he was he kind of helped me separate myself from basketball. He was kind of like my anchor for music and my love for that. Uh, Jordan, kind of my best friend and one of my older brothers. He's uh, a year, two years older than me. Uh, he always played sports. I always looked up to him. Uh, he's literally my best friend. He, I think I get my competitive nature from him. You know, we always play one-on-one to like 50 um, late nights in the gym, and we would just play and play and play until we were just exhausted. And He kind of gave me my drive, my drive to want to be a stronger-minded person and a stronger player in general. Uh, he was a good player, and um, he was always physically more advanced than I was. So playing against him kind of set me up to play against stronger guys and have a mindset that um, if you're skilled – surpassing the physical things then uh, you can survive so um, my younger brothers always kind of bring me down to earth Jalen and Isaiah uh, my brother Aaron is kind of the smart one of the bunch so um, I guess I get that from him now uh, we, we all feed off each other and uh, we all uh, have experienced the same thing so it kind of makes us really close what about your sisters were they athletes as well did they factor into the, the competitive side of the family uh, my sisters weren't athletes. My One of my stepsisters, she's a, a softball player right now, actually, at, at, in college. So she's looking to transfer to the University of Florida. Um, hopefully that happens. I'll have another family member here besides Alex. But as far as blood relations sisters, none of my sisters really didn't did any um, sports that much when they were growing up. You talked about that moment when your dad sat down and said, do you want to take this seriously? And, and you said yes. When after that did you really fall in love with the game once you started putting in that work? What what was the moment that, that clicked for you? I think that first, the next morning in the gym, you know, uh, my dad woke me up at probably 5 a.m. every day after that. And all summer leading into my, my, uh, my, my seventh grade year, uh, we worked out every single day. My dad got me up, drove me to every workout. He worked me out himself. And I was a post player back then. So um, we looked at a lot of players and I kind of fed off them. So I've been playing the post the majority of my life and I've had to expand outward. Um, but, you know, without my dad kind of putting the ball in my hands and kind of guiding me for my first couple of years of playing, I wouldn't be as diverse or as talented as I am. I asked this next question to someone who has never and likely will never be able to dunk on a 10 foot rim. But when was the first time that you dunked and how big of a deal was that? Um, first time I dunked was in sixth grade. I was probably 12 or 13 at the time, somewhere around there, I think. I was in the back of a church, and one of my coach, Coach Mack, I think it was Coach Mack, I was just trying, I was in the gym by myself, and he was watching through like a snack stand, and I just was running to the other side of the court, trying to run full speed and like dunk. I kept missing, 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 and he told me to take off a step further, and he's like, you're, you're trying to dunk too far, too close <laughs> to the rim. So I moved back further. And um, I dunked it, and he took a, a video on, I think he might have had a BlackBerry, so the quality <laughs> was terrible. Quality was so bad. Right. I dunked it, and it kind of just went crazy. And as the years got on, I just kept moving further and further and further back, and my athleticism just kind of ro- uh, rose. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of people first saw you at the, the high school dunk contest. Um, what, what was some of the inspiration for you when it came to that? What were dunks you had seen over the years that you started saying, okay, I want to try and do something like this or start working elements of that into my dunks? I was in a lot of dunk contests in, in high school. Uh, obviously, we had the short conference one. Uh, I, I won that three years. Um, I think my freshman or sophomore year, I was in a dunk contest against Zion Williams, uh, Hamadou Diallo, 
Miles Norris and a couple other players who are just extreme athletes and obviously in the NBA now came in third in that dunk contest. I think I got robbed a little bit, but <laughs> um, at that age, I was kind of just like a young leaper. So I didn't know the kind of the skill behind winning a dunk contest and stuff like that. But as I got older, I kind of watched Vince Carter and um, I worked with a, a friend of mine. He kind of was like a dunk guru in a sense. He mm-hmm. kind of worked with Hamid Diallo to help him win the dunk contest last year. Um, he knew Terrence Ferguson for a long time, who's a close friend of mine. So kind of looking up to guys that um, I've watched over the years who were kind of similar to myself as far as athleticism, kind of taking their dunks and using what um, they've done to win. I'm sure there's going to be future dunk contests on the horizon for you in college and then at the next level. Uh, are there any you can tell us about now that are sort of in the uh, the imagination stage? Are there any you've thought about doing, maybe a prop, a special guest? Like when you have another chance to show it off, What's it going to look like? Ooh. Um, I did some work with Victor Oladipo over the summer in Miami, mm-hmm. and he was injured at the time. And uh, he was kind of just like showing me a couple tips uh, that kind of work in the NBA. And we started going like over some dunk stuff because obviously he was in a dunk contest a couple times. Um, so we tried this one dunk where I throw out the side of the backboard and kind of 360 and finish on the other side of the rim. Wow. It's, it's, it's a hard one, but I can probably pull it off with some with some help from the crowd and uh, my length. So I haven't tried it in a while since then, but um, I think with some momentum and some blood flow, I I'll, I might be able to pull it off from the crowd. Any game, are you going to bring like Kevin Hart into it? Anything like that? Or is it just going to be I mean, straight dunking? I, I, I would want to jump over it as many people as possible get to get like the fans into it, the judges into it, anything that helps me win. <laughs> Um, outside of dunking, I know your athleticism has also taken you in, in some unique directions. Can you tell us how you got involved in ballet? So I went to a school called PS111 in the Bronx and uh, Ballet Tech, which is located in Manhattan. Uh, they came to our school and they had special groups going to our, um, our gymnasium and they did testing for flexibility and leaping and length and weight and sizes and all this other stuff mm-hmm. and i think it was myself and one other classmate out of all of i think my middle my elementary school or middle school got invited to be a part of their winter program and um i was in their winter program and we went there every wednesday and friday they came to pick us up from school and we worked on routines all leading up to like this big show at the end of the summer um so after that year that's when i really became a thespian i guess you can say <laughs> And I fell in love with just Broadway and singing and dancing and just, the, you know, because I know what kind of goes into that and the hard work that those guys go through. And, you know, the amazing people that come out of that kind of workforce. So um, I did that for probably two to three years. And um, then I moved to Georgia. I met my dad and I kind of used athleticism from ballet and coordination from ballet to kind of carry over to basketball. So everyone kind of says is why I am the athlete that I am, because ballet kind of triggered those attributes. Have you shown off any of those moves to your teammates? Do, do they know about this? Um, I think my teammates know. I think they jokingly talk about it, but <laughs> which is fine, <laughs> obviously. But um, yeah, I think my teammates know about it. I haven't really showed them much. I may have showed them like the first through like the six positions of like your ballet formation, but that's really it. <laughs> you mentioned your background in music as well. I, I heard that Last year, you performed with your high school at Radio City Music Hall. Can you tell us about that part of your background and how that developed as you grew? I always sang. Music was always like something that was um, an outlet for me. And growing up, 
in, in the Bronx and being in the area that we grew up in, my mom made it a, a you know a focus for us not to be like everyone else doing the things that other kids in my area were doing. So um, my little brother's gotten really into video games, and um, my older brother's got into you know veterinarian, and uh, Jordan was into sports, and I was kind of the dude who was into music and um, into writing things like that. So writing, reading, uh, English, English in general, and kind of converting that into music was kind of my my way of coping with what was going on. So uh, then when I met my brother Elijah, he's a really good singer, uh, choir boy. Um, we kind of sing together all the time growing up. So music has been a part of my life for a while. What was it like performing at Radio City? Was that sort of a bucket list type item? Uh, for sure, to be honest. It was a big crowd. Being surrounded by my friends and us being able to work for the two weeks straight on the songs that we wanted to perform for that for that particular performance. I was having to dress up. It was kind of like they were there to see us and not the Rockettes. So it was pretty cool. <laughs> You mentioned, uh, you know, the interest in performing and in Broadway. Are, are there any shows you've had a chance to see? Do you have a favorite show, favorite performers, anything like that? I've seen a couple shows, actually. I think my favorite two now are uh, The Color Purple with the original cast and Wicked. I think Wicked is always one of the go-to shows. If you're in New York City, you want to see a Broadway show, you have to see Wicked. I think that's something that is pretty cool to go see, honestly. Mm-hmm. I just saw Wicked for the first time a few weeks ago, and it, it lived up to the hype because it had been hyped for a very long time, but it's a, it's a really impressive show. Right? It's, yeah. It's, it's, like, that was something I think like, – I'm a Wizard of Oz fan, so like – Right. My, my Aunt Dawn used to make me watch those movies all the time, so when I went to go see it in person, it was like a whole new switch to the story. Plus, right. like, the music was awesome, so it was great voices, everything. It was, it was pretty dope. The whole story made so much more sense. I was like, "Oh wow, this is this isn't just a prequel. This is this is everything. This is everything. <laughs> everything behind the scenes that we didn't know before." Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, outside of shows, in terms of music, do you have any favorite artists, favorite songs of all time? It depends on the genre of music, honestly. Um, growing up, I was really into. My mom and I used to sit in our room and watch Cadillac Records. I listened to a lot of Muddy Waters, Little Waters, um, Etta James, Chuck Berry, Frankie Lyman. Uh, Ray Charles. I've always been a huge fan of Ray Charles and just, uh, you know, a bunch of other people. And as I got older, my genre of music kind of expanded. So uh, from hip hop, I listen to some country, not very often, but um, just a little bit kind of branch off everywhere. Who are your favorite current artists? I would have to say Daniel Caesar, J. Cole, Hmm. Childish Gambino. Let's see who else. I feel like there's so many. I'm trying to pick out like the best ones that I really, really listen to. Yeah. Um, Sam Smith. Sean Mendez, actually. There's a couple. There's a couple. Yeah. That's a nice, nice spectrum along uh, R&B, mo- both traditional and then more contemporary. I like that. Bringing things back to basketball for you, when you started getting recruited, what made Florida stand out? Because you had offers from pretty much everyone all over the country. Why was Florida the school that you zeroed in on? I think my relationship with them was kind of the longest. Uh, the first couple schools that recruited me were St. John's, Villanova, and Florida. So it was the new staff that came in and I remember I was in New York City for our first session of Under Armour, and Dusty May, when he was an assistant here at the time, was sitting on the sidelines and uh, literally on the court, basically. All the coaches were there, and uh, I think I was I made a joke with the ref, and I think Dusty, Dusty uh, heard it, and we all three of us started laughing. So um, after that, uh, Coach Klatsky got a call from Florida, and they showed interest, and I don't think they missed the game for the rest of my high school career. So my relationship built with them and you know i don't think a lot of players can say that they have a coaching staff that had you know two or more coaches at every single one of their games so 
that means a lot to me. And, you know, it was family here. So, you know, my relationship with Coach Darius um, has grown over the last five or six years. And he's more family than me than, you know, a coach. So mm-hmm. when you get on campus, obviously, if you're a McDonald's All-American, there's a certain expectation level. There's a lot of hype that comes with that. What's the process been like for you of getting on campus and starting to to really understand what it means not just to be a college basketball player, but to be in college and be away from home and, and in your case, very far from home? I think it's a it's a it's definitely a, a shock, to be honest. When you get here, like you said, you know, you expect to receive certain things and as far as attention. And when you get here, you know, no one cares. In all honesty, I think that's something that young players need to need to really know coming into college. You know, there's. Everyone on your team was the best player where they came from. So there's a bunch of views on a team and you guys have to come together in order to win games. You know, for me, I struggled my first two months here. Um, you know, those t- first two months felt like years. So it's important to have a great supporting cast and people who really have your best interests at heart. Um, making the right decisions, obviously, you know, that's extremely important. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have chose anywhere else to go to, to be honest. You know, the, this coaching staff was kind of guided me through a lot. You know, I had a lot of ups and downs in the beginning of the school year and me being kind of the, the competitor that I am, I was kind of combative in a way at the beginning of the year. But when I when I really opened my ears and um, listened to the message instead of how I was being introduced, um, that's when I excelled and that's what allowed me to be better and uh, allowed Coach White to trust me even more and my teammates to trust me. In terms of the teammates that have helped guide you the most, since you got on campus which ones have had the biggest direct impact on you and why? Um, to be honest, I don't think there was anyone individually. I think since we have so many freshmen, I think everyone was trying to help each other out. You know, I'm the same. I'm a freshman, but I'm the same age as the sophomores that are here. So I'm really close with them. I'm really close with the freshmen. And I think my my mindset allows me to be close with the upperclassmen as well. So we, we have a goal, and um, it was to make sure we were all on the same page. So I don't think I can say any one person kind of helped me get to the point to where I'm at now. I think it was all of my teammates and um, it was kind of all the coaches giving me bits and pieces of knowledge here and there to kind of guide me to, to get where I'm at. Since you've been on campus, have you had any funny freshman moments? I'm trying, I forgot who it was, but I think, you know, it was Chris Chioza a few years ago said that he got on the wrong bus and didn't figure it out until he was on the other side of Gainesville. A- any moments for you where you've had to kind of step back and say, wait a minute, I, I got to get a handle on what's going on here? Um, Nothing like that. You know, obviously, <laughs> obviously Trey Mann has been on this campus a hundred thousand times, so he kind of knows it pretty well. So we kind of use him as as our guide. But um, I'm trying to think. I think we had a team meeting and it was about school and about how you shouldn't be late to class and stuff like that. And Literally the first day I oversleep and I'm late to class. (laughs) And uh, it turns out like two other freshmen were late to class too. So it was just kind of just like a wake up call to kind of. Literally. If you have, if you're going to wake up at nine, you have class at 930, you might want to wake up at 830 and make sure you have an hour span. I know where you're getting to. So that's probably my funniest story. Kind of being late, (laughs) kind of being late to things that I normally wouldn't be late to in high school. Right. Um, We've talked a lot about some of your interests off the court, but I want to talk to you about giving back and, and how passionate you are about that. Can you tell us about Hoops for Homeless and what inspired you to make giving back to the community such a big part of what you do? Well, for me, um, my brothers and I come from a, a single parent home. Um, my mom raised us for the majority of our lives on her own. So she didn't ask much help. She didn't ask for too many things. And um, in New York, we were living in the shelter at the time. And um, we, we were, to, to be honest, we were poor. So um, 
uh, I was in Georgia uh, with my team, Team Real National, on a tournament. And I seen a family outside of Chipotle and um, they were begging for food. And so I went back inside and tried to spend as much as I could to try to, you know, feed them. Because I think everyone who walked past them didn't really pay any attention to them. So in a way, I could kind of be empathetic towards that because I know how that feels. And I know what it feels like to kind of wonder uh, where you're going to sleep at and where your next, where your next meal is going to come from. So I, I've seen my mom struggle for a long time. And that's something I don't want other people to have to go through. So the fact that I have a voice and I have, you know, a platform in order to reach people that I'll never get to physically meet is something that I think not only myself, but all athletes and all people who have kind of a voice should take advantage of. So that was kind of my first step in the right direction in order to kind of help people who are in a position that I wasn't in. Mm -hmm. And how did Hoops for Homeless come together? How did that whole event kind of, uh, kind of form? Uh, that same night that we were in Georgia, I was in a room with Alex and I said, I need your help to start a website and to start a GoFundMe account. And I'm going to put this out that tomorrow and we're going to start this thing up. And we uh, found a date. Uh, we found a couple um, one of my trainers from back home, Ryan Daly, who was um, also a police officer in that area. <clears throat> and a couple other people, my family members and Coach Brian, uh, we found some sponsors to, you know, to get the event off its feet. And we had a lot of fans show up and I contacted the best players in you know, the short conference and the tri-state area to kind of draw, draw the crowd. And it was, it was great my junior year and my senior year. So while uh, we raised, I think over $15,000 for wow. um, the lunch break foundation in Red Bank, New Jersey in the last two years. So I'm hoping I can be home in May and um, I can have a third event trying to get some players right now, but focus on the season. But, you know, um, I think it's going to be an even bigger success this year. Hopefully we raise even more money. Big picture, looking at hopefully down the road when you've got an even bigger stature and profile and resources, what are what are your goals for, for philanthropy? What, what do you hope to be able to do beyond just this one event? Um, so I grew up with a small group of friends, kind of two, di two different separate groups. My best friends are um, Zen Rizzuto and Mike Detro. Uh, those are kind of the friends that keep me sane and they, uh, they allow me to have fun and be a kid and uh, things like that. Um, and I have my girlfriend, my best friend, Eddie, Tyler, Jordan, James, and, uh, you know, my girlfriend's brother. We have a group called PLP. Um, it means peace, love, positivity. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's kind of what we want to preach and, you know, give off this vibe into the world. So we're hoping that um, from, from a financial standpoint, uh, we can kind of provide shelter um, and provide st stability for people who are impoverished and I'm um, in all places starting with our tri-state area and hopefully we can expand. Um, my grandmother and I have been working on this kind of business plan to start a, um, a nonprofit foundation that gets back to uh, lower income communities uh, where we're from beginning and um, kind of expand into internationally. So obviously that's in the works. It's not something that uh, I'm solely focused on at the moment for obvious reasons, but hopefully when I get off my feet, we can start that immediately. So you know, there's big plans, there's a lot of ideas that's been fluctuating over the years. And I think I have the right team who has the right mindset and the right hearts in order to do so. So we're working on those things behind the scenes and hopefully they can go into play. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, we could talk to you all day, but we only have time for one more question. So last thing for you, can you just right now step back and, and think about what right now are you most focused on as a player in terms of improving, in terms of your next steps? How do you get to where you want to be through the course of this spring? I think individually is uh, becoming a better playmaker. 
um, with shot, shot selection, pass selection, um, you know, knowing certain things about the game and staying on top of the game during the game. So kind of being that second mind and that second part of what Coach White wants him to be or any coach that I will um, play for in the future and being able to be trusted by my teammates and my coaching staff to make the right decisions. So my playmaking needs to be taken to a whole other level. Um, obviously, my offensive game needs to catch up needs to catch up to what I do on the defensive side of the ball. And I think collectively, it's um start. start you know, we we have experience winning a championship in Charleston, so we know what it feels like. And obviously, that's an amazing feeling. And um, we want to repeat that with the SEC championship and make a make a long run in the uh, NCAA tournament. And hopefully, win that as well. Uh, we have the talent. We have the prospects to do so. Um, it's just a matter of um, buying in and doing what needs to be done. So those are just a couple things that I'm trying to work on. Well, Scott, you really appreciate your time. You're doing a lot of really cool things. I know Gator Nation's excited to see. So good luck to you the rest of the season. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.